This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with performance analyst and coach Nick Gearing. He discusses his current PhD work, focusing on isolated practice and how this is informing some of the top academies in Europe, his role in trying to close the gap between the academic and practical football setting, as well as some of his work during spells at Brentford and Leighton Orient. We are currently trying to grow our audience and want you to be part of it, so please do us a favour and share this podcast with friends and family. This will allow us to keep making episodes. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Nick, this has been one of the hardest podcasts to organise and it's been all my bad, so I apologise for that. <laughs> so thanks for bearing with me, but uh, how are things? All good your end? Yeah, all good. Keeping busy, keeping very busy at the moment, but um, yeah, no, all good, thank you. Good. So um, I, I wanted to obviously have a conversation. We've had a chat before about some some exciting work and, and whatnot you're doing. Um and then obviously senior profile and stuff, and there's some really interesting bits on there. So um, if you can kind of a whistle-stop tour, talk to people, I guess, about some of your experiences and, and then what you're up to now, and then we'll get probing around some of the exciting stuff that you're doing, which I think will really help coaches um, around cool. the world, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to cram into, like, a, a few minutes. Even just a few years has been a lot. But, um, yeah, I mean, so starting out with my uh, my plan was always coaching long term um never played never was in academy or anything um but i uh, first role was actually at gillingham i basically got that by sending out letters to any any club that's within sort of two hours of where i live um or lived at the time um long story short was was an intern at gillingham um leading leading the uh, basically it was working for free for Gillingham um being in charge of analysis there um and then second season that was like turned into a paid role full-time um which is really good the club while I was there we had like the top two uh league position finishes in like 20 years like that included players like um like John Egan who's playing for Sheffield United at the moment and Republic of Ireland and uh, Bradley Dack as well uh, so that was really good. Um, I then moved to to Leighton Orient, um, which was absolutely mad. Um, the first year I was there, we had um, the ownership at the time was 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 difficult to say the least. I went in with Andy Hessenthaler as manager, and eight games later he had gone. Um, and we had five managers that season. Um, I was actually the only member of first team staff that stayed from day one to the last day of the season. Um, which when you think about it, is crazy. And I think at this point I'm talking, I'm, I'm 23 years old. And I basically during that season, I was doing some academy coaching as well as being head of analysis. And I, uh, by the end of the season, I was doing first team coaching, um, which was bonkers considering I went into being an analyst and that was it. Um, so I then stayed on at Orient, new ownership came in, stayed on at Orient and the new owners had seen my coaching and, and, basically made me a uh, first team player development coach uh, to work a lot around the individual side of it. Still head of analysis um, at that time. And yeah, left Orient, um, done some work part-time with, with Brentford as a, a video recruitment scout. I'm currently a teacher as well, uh, recently qualified as a teacher um, and doing my doing a PhD at the moment. So lots of really interesting research about um, how basically how it, how academies are developing players and like it, it, I think I, you know it's a real could be a huge piece of research about you know what comes out here about how current Champions League players have been been developed so yeah really exciting stuff around that um, and along the way as well I own Performance Analysis UK and I've been running that for a few years with doing courses and that sort of thing so yeah lots going on um, very busy I definitely wasn't joking I said busy at the beginning of this um, but yeah no all good all good that's where we're up to at the moment I think Perfect. So if we start with the PhD side, I guess the first question for me is what drew you to doing a PhD in the first place? What what made you want to do it? And then what made you settle on the area that you've decided to investigate? Yeah, so, I mean, really, doing a PhD was like a, um, it was very, it was during COVID. I want to be back into football is my, you know, picture of this. This is sort of where I am. Want to be back into football and you know you apply for jobs and 
there, there was a role that I I'd applied for at, um, at, at Aston Villa at the time. Um, it was a, a scouting role and got down to the interview stage and they said to me, right, you are one of the final few. We had 500 applicants and I was like, wow, like we, I've got to stand out here somehow. Um, and basically I looked into basically just a way of standing out. The PhD was, was something that I looked into. Um, spoke to um, Dr. Matt Bridge at uh, University of Birmingham, who basically said a PhD would be good, but they do a thing called a professional doctorate, which is a, a sort of a, um, encapsulates a, a PhD, but it's for people who are working in, on the applied side. So I um, basically spoke to um, Barry Just at, at the university as well. And, and that was basically my sort of my in for it. And uh, I had a sort of a subject at the time because um, everything that you see on, or a lot that I see on Twitter and is, is on my followers at the moment is, there's so much around isolated practice and, and that in football and how that sort of, uh, you know, how that's being encouraged a lot, a lot of, you know, one-to-one -one coaching and that sort of thing. And I've been to, uh, you know, see academy sessions at Chelsea and that sort of thing before. And, and isolated practice was huge, but I kept seeing so many people tell me that it was a load of rubbish and it couldn't be used. And there was a real sort of conflict there. And I was like, my basically my proposal was you know I'm coming from this from a very much a uh, a professional side rather than an academic side you know and, and for me those two things have always been miles I think they have been miles apart I think they are in sport and I think that's something that's starting to come closer together and that's why we want to do this so yeah I mean that was my sort of angle to start with it was my point was well if it's so rubbish why are all these clubs doing it and that was basically where I wanted to go with it um and yeah and that sort of progressed a little bit into uh, so my first study was was around that, and that's sort of being written written up at the moment, and you know will hopefully be published. But around basically just the picture of isolated practice at the moment, you know what are our clubs doing it? Are you know are the Chelsea's who I mentioned just then? Are they doing it? What's their reason for doing it? What are what are they saying about it? Um, because as I say, I want to get a bit more of a real life picture. I think the big thing about this was about doing the PhD was like to say looking most studies most academic things are right we're going to do something now uh and we're going to look to the future and over the next six months we're going to measure it and i was a little bit like well it's all well and good but the champions league and the premier league have already got a lot of good players playing in them why don't we just ask the coaches how they were developed you know because we already the, the problem is when you do like a six month trial of a of a of research is you don't know how it's going to end in, in the end well we already know that bill Foden's playing the premier league so why don't we just ask these coaches what he's been doing up to this stage? You know, that way we're, we're in the space of the time it takes to interview and observe and, and all of those sort of things. We're finding out about 15 years worth of information, all about his child and all about all these sort of things. Um, so, yeah, that was my, my first study was just around isolated practice. And now I've started to, as I sort of mentioned, then branch out a little bit and just go, these players, you know, what what's creating them? You know, so I've... Um, I've been interviewing lots of brilliant coaches. That, um, basically, I, I I got the 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 clubs out of the top five leagues, as in uh, England, France, Germany, Spain, and, and Italy, and, and basically looked to see where each of those players were at the age of sixteen. Um, and now I've I've created a, basically a, a table of who the most productive academies are um, from that sense. And I'm interviewing their coaches and saying, you know, what does your sessions look like? What why do you do that? What's Where's that come from? Um, so I've spoken to coaches at Ajax and Barcelona, uh, Man City and uh, you know Man United, or clubs from 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 all over, Sporting Lisbon, and that's exactly what I'm doing at the moment. So I'm I'm trying to create this piece of research that will hopefully be a little bit of a could be a framework in the future. You know that that's sort of the end goal for me. Um, I'm going to soon start to observe some of these sessions and um, there's, there's a potential of me going to Holland and, and looking at some sessions there about how they've worked have been invited over by quite a few clubs. Um, a huge English club has been in contact about the research as well, about using it in their academy. So there's lots of really exciting things going on with it. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that sort of couldn't believe how it was always an idea. And I was like, can I actually see this through? You know, can I, will I get these conversations that I want? And yeah, I mean, it's been incredible experiences learning about why clubs are doing things. And, you know, the, these, these coaches who have worked with these brilliant players and, and, you know, sort of seeing what they've done and, and how maybe that could be implemented in the future at, at other academies. 
So I'm not going to ask you, obviously, for the real intimate details, because I think, obviously, for those people that are listening to this, they can wait for the, the actual project and what not to come out. I guess, from my perspective, do you see any great disparity in terms of what clubs are doing, be it in a country or across the top five leagues? Do you see quite a difference in what clubs are delivering yeah. to their players? Yeah, I, I think there is. You know, it's interesting because the main part I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do at the moment is make sure that that, um, that research is across. Although, you know, we're focusing on the top five league players and then we look at the academies they came from. Like, there's a lot more that come from basically the other four than there is France. You know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, clubs who are coming players who are coming from Portugal who are playing in the Premier League, that sort of thing. So they're actually outside the top five leagues. But, um, yeah, it's really interesting just the styles that they, they sort of take up in terms of the way that they, they want to do things. You know, there's no secret about the way that Barcelona do things. You know, a lot of that stuff you can you can sort of Google a little bit. There's Spanish clubs are a lot less inclined to look at isolated practice. Everything's more game-based in, in what they're doing and the, the, the things that they're... they're uh, the way they're designed in sessions and um, you know it's interesting talking about how they they sort of coach technique is is in a completely different way and it's like it's interesting because I think English clubs seem to be a lot more um, trendy in a way like seeing what's what's going on at the moment and they will adapt to that whereas Spanish clubs and Italian clubs are very much like well this is the way that we've done it for a long time and they've got success from it so there's a, there's a reason they're continuing it whereas I think we're seeing a big trend at the moment in, in England, certainly, is, is having one-to-one coaches. And, you know, that's, that's definitely not a bad thing. And, and the research will probably show some some potential answers to whether that's a good or bad thing. But I think, as I say, I think English clubs are a lot more sort of adaptable in that sense. They go, well, actually, what can we do now? What can we change? Whereas, as I say, speaking to the Spanish clubs, they're very much like, this is the way that we work. It's our club philosophy. This is what was set by... You know, there's no secret of Johan Cruyff's philosophy years ago. You know, we're continuing with that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a big thing. I think culturally it's it, it's it's hugely different. It's interesting talking to coaches who have gone between countries as well. Uh, there's a couple I've spoke to that have worked in Holland and, and, and the UK as well. And they were saying, like, they came to England and basically said they were expecting that the players would be terrible in England, technically. And, and they said, to be honest, that, that they were in comparison to, to the Dutch academies, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't it wasn't of the same standard. But the focus was more on physicality at the time, you know, at the, at the academies that they're in. You know, one, one coach really interesting, he said, what I actually did was came to the UK and found out there's more than one way to win. You know, I'm spending my life talking about this total football way of playing. And in actual fact, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter how you win a game when, you, when you're older. So, in actual fact, the, the, the focus of, of developing the players maybe actually could be different in, you know, different countries, taking bits from different countries, which is, again, sort of the, the idea of the research. You know, can we create something that's a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and actually could be an ideal way to, to develop players? Yeah, and looping back into something you said there, you mentioned around the use of one-to-one coaches, and obviously you've had experiences in yourself. So for people that maybe aren't familiar, I know there's probably a little bit of a guess in the title, but what are one-to-one coaches and what are they actually used for and how are they used in practice? Yeah, so I mean, when I so when I took on the role, mine was very much a, I'd had a little bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a bad experience with a manager that, that, you know, bear in mind at this this stage, I'm proposing this role to the to the, the director of football, or in, and it was like I was what was I 23 at the time, and and mine was like a, a looking at um, you know, say a manager I worked with who basically said as soon as a player gets to 18, they should be a player, and I, I couldn't I couldn't deal with it. Like that was the, my big thing was like well, no one stops learning. You know, it's that age old thing that everyone's always learning, and people you know some coaches would treat an 18, 19 year old, the same way they treat a 34 year old. And I was like, well, there's development still to come there. And there are different ways of doing it. Just because you've now joined the first team, doesn't mean you're going to be a complete player just because you signed your name on a piece of paper that's worth a lot of money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so for me, that, that role was very much like, um, I had a group of players who were 
Um, it wasn't just me that, that worked one-to-one with them. It was also the assistant manager at the time was doing a lot of work with them, Ross Embleton. Um, but basically, my role was to create goals, really, like find out what what did that player want to be? What did they, where, where did they want to get to? And how we could sort of improve improve that. Um, I had a really uh, interesting call um, with with somebody a bit of one-to-one coach before and they'd actually done some research on it and and like in the in the Premier League and they were a little bit unheard of at the time to be honest I mean I'm only talking like I don't know what was it six seven years ago but there wasn't a lot of them around especially first team level um so that was all about that call was all about um ensuring it's not negative basically a one-to-one can very much seem like you know when when you're at school and, and, and you're taken out of lessons to go and do a uh, do something, you know, like improve your English, improve your maths, it can see, be seen as a negative because you're behind. But in actual fact, my work was all about how can we, you know, some clubs call them super strengths, how can we improve, you know, the things they're currently doing? So, you know, I would talk to, we had, at this time, it was a little bit, um, so we had a, a group of players, the club almost went bust. Um, we literally started uh, pre-season, we think it was seven players and all of them had come from the under 18. And we had a group of really good players. We're talking like Stephen Alzati, who's playing for Brighton at the moment, Josh Caroma, um, Sam Dolby, um, Tristan Abrahams, all these players who end up going upwards and signing for champ- uh, Championship and Premier League clubs. And uh, basically, we all knew they were really, <laughs> they were very good, for, especially for their age. And we basically wanted to protect them a little bit and help nurture them. We didn't have an under-23s at the time. So my role would be to work with them day to day on on their their goals that might be in the game situations in like at the end of training we talk about something they've just done all the training was filmed from my, my work as, as uh, the analyst for the, for the team as well and then I would put on you know just little individual sessions of trying to meet the things that we were doing you know if we're talking I don't know random one we're talking like through path like you know playing at Stephen Alzaki was one that I remember doing a lot of work with that we he always used to get the ball between the lines, turn, and he just needed that little that little through pass sort of thing. And we we um, so we did a lot of work on that. And all it is is to say isolating that skill, isolating that moment, um, repeating it, and trying to you know trying to just give a little bit more of a picture on in his head. So when it comes to it on Saturday, we've got a little bit more of a you know he's got a little bit more of a an idea of you know he might have six thousand people watching him, but in his head he's rehearsed the movement and the, the pattern that he wants to do. Um, so that, that was it for me, really. And I think at the moment, it was seeing a, a big um, sort of influx of coaches that are doing more um, skill-based in terms of like ball mastery. Ball mastery is a big term at the moment, the one that keeps coming up in the research that is very much ball manipulation. And it's getting the idea of a player being able to, to move out of situations. You know, if you give a player enough skills, enough tools, they can move out of situations. So that's something that's coming up a lot at the moment. It wasn't probably wasn't exactly what my role was at the time. Um, but yeah, as I say, that, that's something that's coming out and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot more a lot more clubs are, are hiring these roles because I think they're seeing the importance of actually while the team manager's doing his thing and he's focusing on the, on the team, whether this be first team or under 18s or even lower down, why not have someone who can actually look at, have those personal chats a little bit more about, you know, what are your goals? Now, one of our players at the time, um, Macaulay Bond, he came, he came into that, that category. We'd signed him, uh, paid a bit of money for him, but he was um, he basically came into that category. You know, he's an under-23 player, so he, he came with me. And I said to him, I remember when he first joined Orion, I said, you know, what's your goal? What do you want to do? And, you know, in not so many words, it was basically leave Orion because I want to score a load of goals. And I want to go up the league. And that's exactly what he's done. You know, he's gone on. He's been playing for QPR. Uh, he's at Ipswich at the moment. You know, he's, he's doing really well. So, And with him, it was very much like he had a... There was a lot of stories about... Cause, so Harry Kane had been playing at, at Orient. Um, they'd been on loan at Orient. And there was a lot of stories about how he would just get a bag of balls out and he would practice the same shot over and over again. And he would continue. And he still does it now. Still scores those similar goals. He would come onto his right foot from the right... Uh, come from the left onto his right foot smash it in the bottom corner. He just practiced it over and over again. So McCauley Bond basically said, similar thing, but I want to work on my left foot because I don't think my left foot's very good at the moment. All it was really was like facilitating that, you know, that goal really for him. Um, and, you know, and obviously he saw improvements from it, which which is what, what continued it. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much what the, the, the role was for me. But as I say now, it's very much ball mastery. I think when you see it, I think there's a lot of, I don't, I don't know that, 
I don't mean to sound derogatory when I say Twitter coaches, but like there's a lot of, you know, Twitter and Instagram will be full of coaches working one-to-one with players. And I think the problem is now, or potential problem is that there's obviously a lot of money involved in that. So where it used to be all about development, I think there's a lot of thing now that it's becoming a lot about where it's an easy way for a coach to earn a bit of money and whether they're working on the right things the player needs is, you know, that's, I don't know. But uh, yeah. So what does the research actually suggest in that area at this moment in time? And how's that been challenged as to what you've seen practically? Yeah, so I mean, the research essentially says that uh, there's, there's no point in isolated practice. It, as an overall summary of it, there's so much research that, that as I say, there's no point in it. With, and, and But the problem is all of those studies are done. And, and this is, you know, I had a conversation with, um, so slightly going off off subject, but sort of staying on it at the same time. We, we, there was a, I was writing a, a, a PE curriculum a few years ago, and and someone I had a bit of a disagreement with somebody who's who's uh, academic university, never worked in professional sport, never worked with academy players, that sort of thing, and they made a point about something, and they said, well, all the research is just otherwise. And I said, well, has any of the research been into Chelsea? Has any of it been into all these clubs? Because for me, your research, you know, your research is only half done. As much as you can create some sort of sterile environment and say that isolated practice doesn't work, how do you know that? You know, and I'm not saying it definitely does. I don't know because I I want to I would need to say do the research and actually find out. But um, yeah, so a lot of it is very much uh, games based research. It shows that games based is is the best way. And you know, as you've just sort of touched on there, you're not going to get the opportunities to practice that one skill over and over again. And I think one thing that's um, you know, it depends how you do the isolated practice. I think one thing that I was really keen on was it was never a stationary ball and I tried to interfere with, with what was going on as well. So we would use a lot of things, a brilliant, some brilliant sessions. So um, uh, Ross Embleton, who I mentioned was the assistant, he'd worked at Spurs before that. He actually went on to be Orient manager a couple of years later. Um, came up with some brilliant things. So simple things like, you know, um, like the poles that, that, that you can use in the training ground, things like that. He would lay those on the floor or he would get anything that could be some sort of interference. Smash the ball at, at the pole, the ball bounces up and all of a sudden we've got that interference. You know, we've created some sort of realistic thing. The thing that used to wind me up was when players, we would do shooting at the end of, you know, a bit of finishing at the end of the training and players would always shoot from the centre. You know, how many, how many times do you get a shot rolled to you on the edge of the 18-yard box straight in the centre? doesn't happen. And that was one thing that used to really wind me up. So adding that context to something that, as I say, when I created this, well, I did create this role uh, at Orient. It was um, it was about taking those, the, the finishing practice. I didn't want to any longer just be a finishing practice of you just roll the ball and you have a shot and we're continually doing that. And there's a line of players and all that. Because you need, the idea is to repeat it, but you need to repeat it with some sort of variation because there's no point, you know, if you've had 10 shots of the same shot, by the 10th one, yeah, brilliant. But you're not going to be that set. You're not just going to be standing there during the game. You, you know, you're going to be running onto it. You're going to be the ball might bounce in a different way. You know, players used to hate it, but purposely serving rubbish balls to them in training. Because when, you, you know, when, you, when you're doing it, it goes into a match. You know, I remember the first few times I did it, I had some players, experienced players, who would be like, you know, I'll serve a ball and they'd be like, it's rubbish. And they'd give it back. You say, no, what are you doing? You know, it, it, it's not rubbish because in the game, you're not going to stop there and go, sorry, can we just do that one again? You know, we you need to actually try and replicate those things. Um, so, yeah, I think, as I say, the research at the moment is showing a lot of clubs that are doing isolated practice in many different ways. Um, it's not all about, um, you know, I think it's interesting because so the, the official definition, the PILS definition of, of isolated practice from an academic point of view is quite a uh, quite a lame one in a way. It's, it's very much like it's drills, and and drills is the word that I think needs to be sort of come away from because drills suggest that as as I mentioned a minute ago, we're just going to continue to do the same thing over and over again. There's going to be nothing else involved in it. I think the idea of isolated practice needs to be that we're isolating a skill, we're doing it again and again, but there's got to be some sort of context to it in terms of variation or or something from that point. And I think that's saying that the research is showing that a lot of clubs are, whilst they are doing a lot of ball mastery sessions at the start of, of training for, for younger kids, those ball mastery sessions are moving around an area because straight away you've got some sort of constraint in terms of space. You've got, 
other people dribbling towards you, you need to actually look up. You know, if we're talking about dribbling, you actually need to look up. You need to use your turns that you're learning at, at, at those moments um, rather than just, you know, you on your own in a field practicing a quarter turn 10 times. There's no, there's no context to that. So, um, yeah, I think, as I say, I think the research at the moment, not, um, not showing it in a positive light. And so sort of why I wanted to, to do this in the first place, because clubs are saying otherwise. I think that's, that's the important thing. That's where, that's where I want to get to the bottom of, you know, I'm not saying at this point that isolate practice is the way forward, but if clubs are saying otherwise, it needs to be investigated at least. Yeah, and in terms of like the pathway when you've spoken to clubs, does it look different from maybe like a foundation phase with the real dots to then what they do at the first team level? Is there or is there a point at which it switches or what what does that look like? So one thing that's really interesting, it is a little bit of a trend that's sort of coming out of it. And this isn't something that's the the analysis side of it's not been done yet. It's just from 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 the conversations that I've sort of picked up on is that clubs are very much isolated when they're younger because they want to control the environment. They want to control what they're doing. You know, each child has a ball dribbling around an area or it may be dribbling around cones, like dribbling around an area. Clubs quite often have this at the start of the start of the session. But as an overall picture, I know very, you know, many clubs do it differently, but as an overall picture, clubs quite often do that sort of thing. And it gradually builds and builds and builds. And it gets to the age of about 12 or 13, um, you know, when they go into the, the, the sort of youth development phase. And it's like, at this stage, we're going to steer away a little bit from isolated practice. We're going to go for games based. And then as soon as they become under 18s and they're full time again, at the end of the training, they start practicing their finishing. And you think, why was there that, that little bit of bit in between? Why from the age of 13 to 15, 16, did we not bother with it? But, as soon as they're in the first team, because they've got the time after training and that sort of thing, they'll do it. Um, so, yeah, I think to answer your question, I think ball mastery is huge at, at, at the younger ages. And as it gets to that sort of, um, you know, 13s to, to 16s age, I think everything seems to become more game-based in the session. You know, I'm not saying that the younger years are not games-based at all, because generally the, 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 the sort of picture that, that most clubs sort of paint is that, the start of the session will start with, with ball mastery because it's getting those minutes in, getting those touches in, becomes a little bit more games-based during the during the session. Um, whereas sort of 13s upwards from what I've, as I say, this isn't fully analysed or completed research yet, but from what I'm noticing at the moment, it's very much like now we're starting to be more game-orientated in pretty much everything we do when we get to those sort of ages. But as I say, it's just interesting because when they get to, you know, Everyone talks about how Ronaldo and Harry Kane and all that, you know, they do extras at the end of the session. That's isolated practice. And I was talking a minute ago about how I was doing that. And it's interesting how we just sort of start off with that. Then it's all left to games based. And then in the end, clubs encourage going back to, to you know, working on your finishing, working on your free kicks, working on your, you know, those sort of things. So, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much where we're at with it at the moment. Have you got any rationale to why you think that happens? I haven't, to be honest. No, at this stage, I haven't. I think it's. Um, I think. I think one word that I mentioned a minute ago is quite important, like controlling. I think. I think really controlling the environment is really important because people see young kids, and and I think you know there's there's one there's one real belief that um, that chaos is is really important. But I think a lot of clubs are a little bit like, well, we need to just we need to make sure they learn the skills first. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to get too far too far into chaos and then as you mentioned a little bit like you mentioned earlier how many times does a, does a kid get to practice things in a game situation do they get to practice those turns do they get to touch the ball so many times whereas if they've got a ball each you know then they can do it and I think there's a real um, I think winning comes into it as well not not necessarily maybe winning is the wrong word but competition you know when kids get to that age of sort of 13 upwards competition becomes a little, it all becomes a little bit more you're looking at the first team now, whereas before you were a kid who's in school and you're just learning the skills. But when it comes a little bit more competition, I feel like that's the sort of ages that they're like, well, we haven't got time for that anymore. We just need to get playing games and we need to we need to make it all, you know, real to the game. Um, which I think is, a, as I say, it seems quite a segmented sort of approach in terms of younger age controlled. And now we're going to start to, uh, now it's games. Um, yeah. And do you have any plans to conduct this over different 
um, sport. So for the example I've used previously is if you look at basketball, if if an individual's really struggled with their three-point shooting over one season, they will spend pretty much the entire off-season going, okay, I'm going to get better at this. And listen, I know that you can replicate the shots and conditions maybe slightly easier in basketball, but there's still always going to be some level of disparity between what you're practicing to what's in a game. So do you do you plan on comparing it or have you compared it to what they do in other sports and how much isolated practice they may do maybe they do in basketball or golf or tennis or rugby or anything like that yeah I mean at the moment I haven't and that's not something I'd say it's not on the cards too but just because I think there's so much to explore in football at the moment as I said I think the biggest the biggest problem is that a lot of people in academies know what they do but from an academic point of view they don't you know, they don't know. I mentioned earlier, there's such a big split between the two that at the moment I'm fully focused on football because I'm a little bit, you know, we need to sort of provide a bit of an answer. It's not, it won't necessarily be a final answer, but we need to provide a little bit of an answer. You know, I, I spend, you know, on Twitter and, and there's so many podcasts and all sorts that are, are trying to explain that isolated practice is, there's no point to it. You know, I sort of mentioned earlier about the, you know, the, um, the, the lecturer at the university who was saying, you know, there's no point to it. And the problem is these people haven't been in it. So that, and that's the big thing for me. That's why I'm trying to, I feel like I'm between the two at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm, I've, I've got the football background and I've seen what clubs are doing. And I've got the, the academic side of it now, obviously doing the PhD. And I feel like I need to try and bridge that gap a little bit. I do genuinely feel like that. And there's not a lot of people doing it because when you're working in football, you don't have that, um, you don't have that time to be quite honest. You don't have any time when you're working in football. So there's not many people. I was sort of fortunate that I had a bit of a kind of enforced break, if you like, from football that I've that I've had sort of had the time to to do this, and this could be my sort of my direction back in. So yeah, at the moment, fully focused on football, but um, and I think that's just because football's such a big conversation. You know, it's such a big in terms of the way academies are planned. There's so much money in it. There's so much. Um, you know, you know, you look at any academy, the, the, the funding that goes into it is millions. And a part of me is a little bit like, well, what if they're doing it wrong? You know, like, what if they're not, what if they could do it better? So, so that's my, that's my main focus at the moment, but there's no reason that it, it couldn't. I think basketball is a good one that you mentioned there because there are similarities to football in the, in the openness of the game and how hectic it is. You know, there's so much, and the other frustrating thing is there's so much research that's, um, a lot of research about like game representativeness and that sort of thing but the research of a lot of this stuff is done in baseball and tennis and and that how can you compare that to football and i think that's the problem everybody's saying well well no this this research has definitely said that isolated practice doesn't work or you know something similar to that or working in a similar way well it's a completely different sport you can't even compare the two so i'm trying to build a real thing now of Let's try and make this. Let's try and make some good research in football, really. That's actually involving the people who are going to use it, rather than somebody telling me you sit behind a desk at university. That actually, I did a study once, and there were six six students from the university who were involved in the study, and and they, you know, it didn't work for them. So why should it work for Premier League football? Yeah, it's, it's disparity there for sure. And before I move on and we can get, discuss some of the other bits of work that you've done, how open have, have people been in terms of helping you with this? Because I'd imagine, you know, for clubs, one, this is a really interesting bit of research in terms of how it can challenge some of the work-ins or maybe maybe align to some of the work they do and go, well, all the research says this, but actually we've got this new bit of research which doesn't closely align to what we do and it does show that maybe there is some value to it so how open and have people been in, in supporting you in this area um i think the main thing is that a lot of the coaches because it's historical sort of data in terms of players who are current professionals now and we're looking at what they did a lot of those coaches have moved on so like moved on from the club that they were at so in actual fact it's been quite I've been quite fortunate in that sense because it's difficult. You know, you contact these, you contact the clubs themselves, and there's not many, especially to start with. It's once the ball gets rolling, it's interesting. As I said, you know, I mentioned I had a, a club who who um, got in contact with me about using the research in their academy, and that's because they're seeing all the clubs' research that's sort of involved in it. You know, I'm, I'm having to speak to the clubs themselves aren't necessarily giving me any sort of answer, but 
if a coach has worked in that environment, you know, they've worked, I, I sort of got a bit of a measure on it. As long as they've worked in that environment for a few years and they've actually seen it, they've seen different age groups, then I can actually, you know, I can speak to them and I know that what we're talking about is factual. Um, so, and, and, you know, there's a lot of, of club philosophies that have been passed on to me in terms of documents as well. So again, which are going to be brilliant for the research and try and actually create, you know, if I want to create a club philosophy at a, you know, a lower league club or, or, or academy in future, I, I've got about 10 to choose from that I can pick, pick the parts out of, which is brilliant. And and that's really, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier, like the, the end goal for me is getting a framework here, you know, from it. But yeah, I think, as I say, I think to start with, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, I, I don't know if the club will want me involved in that and that sort of thing, which is why part of the, the research, the actual coaches will remain anonymous throughout this because of that that very point you know the only way you can get the best research is if you're actually giving people the freedom to say what they want to say and what they they've seen um without the the concern that a club might might pull them up on it um so uh yeah so there's a lot and most of say most have said that they want to they want to, to remain anonymous I had a really good call uh, that, uh, he won't have any problem with me saying this cohen stam um at fire Nord. so he's director of methodology made a presentation for me and just taught me through the whole like philosophy for the club and the methodology for the club and how that works from under sixes to first team. Um, so as I say, yes, as it's gone on, I think people have seen, oh, you've had a Barcelona coach and Ajax coach. Now we sort of want to be interested in this as well. So it's becoming, it's becoming better. I think one area that, that I do need, I mean, if, if you do have any, uh, by any chance have any German listeners to this, I'd, I would like some German clubs. Um, I've got a few like Stuttgart and Mainz um, and uh, Bayern Munich and Dortmund who, who I would basically like to interview because that's one area that, or one country at the moment that I'm sort of missing out on a little bit. I want to improve what I've got there um, because, you know, the Germans, uh, again, it's a different style. We talked about earlier, different styles from different countries and I really want to sort of see their style as well, but they seem to be... Uh, one elusive country very hard to get hold of any of the people there well i might i'll speak to you off air but i might actually have someone for you i won't say the team one thing but i might have someone that i can pass on so uh, yeah we'll catch up on about that after um so in terms of when you're at your first team role in orion one of the things that you mentioned was around the kind of the hectic year of having five managers during during the season now from a playing perspective as a scholar, I had the same um, when, when I was at QPR. We went through, well, I think more managers than I had hot dinners at the time. Um, how was it for you as a staff member in terms of having all these people come in? Um, and they talk about how people interact during that first period. And, you know, we talk about the first thing manager bounce, but also I think there's a level of trying to get to know the culture of the club currently and what that looks like how did you how did that filter down and what did you see maybe that some coaches did really well during that period and maybe where others struggled and yeah what what did that look like yeah so I mean it was interesting it was hectic from the point of view I sort of mentioned ownership because of basically I, it's fairly public now like we had an owner who wanted to pick the team and an owner who wanted to, to put his players in and players that he discovered from all the obviously some of the conversations and meetings I was in was, was incredible. I, I one day I think I might write a book about it. So it's, it's definitely sort of book worthy. But yeah, so from those managers' point of view, like so, I went in with Andy Hessenthaler. He had been interim manager the season before, um, and that season we'd actually bought a load of new players. So that was very much like a fresh start. Like I only joined the club just before the start of the season, so that was like. He had sort of set his way. This is all what we're going to do. But eight games in, he uh, he left and was replaced with. Um, I actually can't remember his name. To be honest, this was how bad it was. So he was um, so an Italian guy who had he had been at Sampdoria in the past. They got relegated, um, and he didn't speak a word of English. Um, and honestly, so I joined the club and say eight games in. We've been doing all right as well. One of our players, we've got player of the month a couple of times. We've then been told that he wasn't allowed to play anymore. And that was a constraint put on the manager. And it was really interesting. So being in that room, the manager was really honest with us as staff because it was very much like, a, it's horrible to say, but it was like an us and them. Like we, as a, as, as a group of staff, we had to sort of stick together because 
the owner would come in and, and the players would be like, oh, he's coming in to pick the team again. And it was like, it was such an awkward thing because our manager then had to go and speak to the players on the training ground where the owner couldn't be, you know, couldn't hear it and, and talk about the fact that, yeah, he's tried to pick the team, but I'm not going with it. And it was a really awkward situation. So, yeah, second manager came in. It was it was Italian. Um, didn't speak a word of English. Really interesting concepts though that he brought in. Like so, we we had um, <laughs> he he had one of our our coaches. I won't mention the coach. He's gone on to be very successful now. But one of the coaches there, he he told him in the first couple of days that right, you're going to be throwing coach. And this is a coach who had been like, you know, he had played at a really good level. He had been he had managed at a really good level is now coach at an incredible level and it turned out this guy turned up and said you're going to be in charge of throwing you know and and at the time throwing coaches are a thing now and that you know the set piece coaches are a thing now but at the time it was a little bit it felt like a little bit especially to him with very, a bit of a like sort of a derogatory thing like we can't really trust you with the the ball so you, you're just going to have the ball in your hands and it was a bit of um as I say, a bit of an awkward thing so that was difficult i mean he I think he had the shortest reign of all of them. I think he was 60-something days, this guy. Um, didn't learn a word of English throughout that time, um, which was obviously difficult. We didn't have, I think we had uh, we had a few foreign players that, that's been signed. Um, it was interesting because there was, a, there was a, a translator there as well. We, we had a, so there was a couple of uh, Italian members of staff as well um, and, and a player who could speak Italian and Spanish, I think it was. And they were all saying very different things about what the translator was saying and what the manager was saying. So we were, honestly, it was a really odd situation. Um, but most of the rest actually were, were sort of promoted from within. So the club, um, after um, this manager went, um, so Andy Edwards, who's, who's now working uh, with England under 16s, I believe, yeah, England 16s coach, I believe. He, was, he went to the FA as, as out of possession coach. So he, he took on the reins, but he'd already been in the club. He was Andy Hester's assistant. He was one of the coaching staff that was there. Um, so he'd already been in the club. Um, but it's interesting because, as you sort of mentioned, I saw five managers turn up and go, right, this is what we're going to do now. Forget everything we've done in the past. This is what we're going to do now. This is our new way. And it was difficult because trying to get that sort of idea on board, especially when the players are well aware and I mean supporters are well aware players are well aware of the ownership situation there was always that doubt in the player's mind about who actually was picking the team you know what has this person been put in charge because of you know and I can quite happily say that you know I certainly know that the from from the the, the well all but I, I, I can't remember the terms now I thought his name was Albert Albert Alberto um Alberto Cavasin, I want to say it was. Cavasin. I've been Googling yeah. for you, by the way. That's not just very good <laughs> knowledge for me. That's good That's great knowledge. Um, no, so uh, the thing is, it's bad that I've, I've actually forgotten his name. Like, And it, it, what was difficult for him was obviously the language barrier and the fact that he was chucked into this, this, this role with players who didn't speak the same language. There was only a couple of members of staff who did. Um, and there were some really good things that I look back now and think, you know, he was, he was actually really trying to do something. You know, he was, I remember his first session was um, all done with the hands, all done with the hands. Everything was, was using the hand, but he was trying to get, it's a small sided game and he was trying to implement his philosophy there. And it was really, it was a great insight really. I was the first sort of foreign manager coach that I'd worked with. It was a great insight into what he was doing. And, you know, I sort of look back now and, and whilst it, it seemed, it seemed ridiculous at the time, it really did to all members of staff and all players, you know, Genuinely, players were turning around saying, like, what is going on here? Like, as the guy's going around, his translators following him and trying to tell tell the players exactly what he's saying. But there were so many ideas, you know, I mentioned there about throwing. He was very much, and I think this is something that's particularly lower leagues was, was sort of ignored a lot, or maybe still is. But he, one of his first sessions was, right, there's a throw-in. He just chucked the ball over at the side. He's right, there's a throw-in there, just inside our own half, set up for it. And he was moving all the players around about how he wanted. And all the players said, oh, come on, as if we don't know, don't know where to stand at a throw-in. And, it's, and you know, you look back now and it, it was ridiculous that people were actually questioning that in a way because the things that he was talking about are the things that you hear about at the top level now. People like, you know, people like Jurgen Klopp, there's a lot of set-piece you know, set work there about when you've got throw in your own half, how do we organise ourselves to be able to, you know, switch play? Or, and that was something that he was, you know, hugely working on. And I think a lot, 
one thing that I did find interesting was most coaches came in and they had first session was with a tactics board and it was this is the way that we're going to play now but as I mentioned it was very difficult very difficult because of the 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 environment at the time um when the last manager came in and I was doing some coaching as well with the first team so um again I say last manager came in so sorry it was Andy Hessenthal to start with who was at the club at the start of the season Alberto Cavazin came from abroad um, and then Andy Edwards was promoted into the position because he was originally assistant manager Danny Webb was a coach at the start of the season ended up getting up the pecking order and became became manager and by the end of the season um, so Omar Rizza who's now working at Watford as under 23 coach started the season I believe he was under 18 I can't remember who was under 16 I think he was under 18 assistant is what he was at the start of the season and by this point was first team manager and it was honestly, it was incredible because he he basically had a touchline ban after his first game. He had a touchline, or first or second game, had a touchline ban, and we had basically we wasn't being paid at this stage as well. Like the owner said, right, well we didn't hear from the owner. It was just you didn't get paid this month, and it was a little bit like, okay, I think this went on for like went on for a couple of months. Basically, there was a huge thing at the club, like you know, between the staff, do we play the game? If we don't play the game, is that the end of Lake Norian? And there was a big thing for me, like you know. Do I want to be part of the members of staff that ended Leighton Orient at the football club? One of the London's oldest clubs, you know. So we felt a responsibility that we've got to carry on. Um, and he brought in, so Omar brought in Neil Fenn from, uh, so he was over in Ireland at the time. He brought in his first day was actually a match day. Omar had a touchline ban. And I found myself as a 23-year-old, came in at the start of the season as head of analysis. I was the face on the touchline for this game, away game against Cambridge. I look across, honestly, I've never made a carpet. I look across and Sean Derry's standing there. Obviously now working in the Premier League with Crystal Palace. Sean Derry's standing there was like my, my counterpart. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, it's, it's incredible. And I think it was just, you know, it was difficult for the players. I think there was a lot of um, a lot of injuries at the end of the season when players wasn't, you know, were, were not being paid. And I think those, you know, obviously those, those injuries were a little bit dubious because players didn't want to play. So we, we spent... I think it was. I think Omar had about eight games as well, and we spent most of those with basically the under 18 the ones who went on, you know, the Stephen Alzatis and Sam Dolby's, the ones that went on to be my core group. Um, so yeah, it was interesting how we sort of tried to implement their their, their different way, um, and they were very different ways. And I think the difference was then that each manager probably saw this as this is my career here. I could actually, if I do well here, I could go on. And I think that was a big thing, like you know you. You see it now when there's a um, <clears throat> there's an interim manager. They're like very much we're sort of going to continue with some of the stuff that we've been doing and and sort of adapt it. Whereas each manager that came in was like, right, we're going to change it because this is how I want to do things. This is how I want to present myself to the board and present myself to prospective you know chairman at other clubs. So yeah, very interesting time. But um, yeah, new ownership came in that season and it was different. Again, so Steve Davis then came in at the start of next season. Um, he's gone on to work with Wolves since then. In terms, I think he was uh, with the 23s. And he was very different. So he'd been working at, at Crew. Uh, Dario Grady was like his mentor uh, there. And he was he was very different. He was very much, I look back at it now, and he was very much like a, he was like a teacher in the way that he did things, which was brilliant. Um, he, I remember him throwing down cones in a formation. It sounds like such a simple thing and something people do in academies. But with first team players, he, you know, he he introduced things like, oh, this is our four four two, or this is our, you know, we just play four two three one with him. Each player stand on a cone. They would be standing five yards apart, and they would pass the ball to each other. But he actually understood what we were trying to get out of it, the patterns that we were trying to get out of it. You know, he used to say to me like, "There's no point in just going out onto a pitch, and we're going to try and do it on a big scale if they don't actually understand the concepts in the first place." Um, and he introduced things like something that I'd never seen at first team before. You know, he would, we would watch games like you do in an academy. We put like one half of the game on, 20, 20 minutes of, of a game on. Uh, the attacking unit, the midfield unit, defensive unit, goalkeepers would all sit separately with a big sheet of paper. And they'd talk about their ideas about what went wrong, what went right. You know, and, that, and that's something that I think for me was 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 really good. That got a lot more buy-in um, from players. But um, as I say, that was sort of start the next, the, the next, season when we had um, new owners and, and the club was sort of developing at that stage I think if, if I'd done that I'd always be blaming the strikers or midfielders for not recovering quick enough as a defender like, he's let us down again, hasn't got hold of it, we've played it into him, hasn't got hold of it and they've broken on us 
But no, I think, you know, the way they break it down now in units is good and it makes you analyse it and probably remove some of the stigma around, you know, sitting in those meetings rather than thinking I'm going to get a pelter here because I know at some point it rolls under my foot or something like that. Um, in terms of, is, is there anything that springs to mind in terms of what an individual did that like lost people almost straight away? Because I can imagine um, you don't you don't have to mention names or anything in this, but I can imagine uh, in that in that situation, which is highly volatile, if you come in and go, yeah, if you come in and you you really lay down the law, you make a comment, you could go right. Players almost straight away go, I'm out, and I'm going to last longer than you are. So good luck with me. Yeah. Is there any examples of that that you can think of? Um, there were probably a lot to be honest. Like when I look back, and there, it was. As I say, because a lot was um, owner-led, I think, particularly when the Italian coach came in, I think in that first session, and, and, and this is a ridiculous thing, like sort of going back to what you just mentioned then, like you said, it's a bit more of the norm now about how analysis sessions are. From my experience of, of, of lower league coaches, that's the only one who's done that. And, I, and that's the thing. I think there was a big thing you know, I look back at, I mentioned about Alberto a minute ago, I look back and there were things that he was doing that's actually really good. But in that first session, the moment he said, right, pick the ball up, we're not using our hands today, we're going to talk for our philosophy. And the whole training session was like a handball game. There were so many players who turned around to each other and was like, no, I can't, I can't do this. Like, and, and it was amazing. It was the little things like that and, and the things like we're working on throw-ins, we spent half hour working on throw-ins or, or something like that. It was, it was those sort of things that were, it was the things that were different and I think that's such a big challenge for coaches because the coaches who did well um, so Danny Webb did really well um, it, when when he was our when he was our, our manager um, and all of that was about right we're just going to bring back the old school values of what we want to do as a team um, and that's what got the players to buy into it and it was really interesting I think at that level obviously I think it's very very different as you go up the levels I think that's one thing for me looking future wise I'm very much probably maybe a little bit picky about like jobs that I'm, I would look at in the future because I don't want to be stuck in that situation where a new manager comes in and it all changes again and that sort of thing. I'm a big fan of, I think one thing that was a really positive move for, for Orient was when they brought in um, Martin Ling as, as director of football because then there was a pathway, you know, Martin Ling was there and, and Ross Embleton was brought in with Martin Ling and, and he was always working the first team, didn't matter who the manager was, he was working the first team. Um, so it gave that little bit of continuity, if you like. You know, just because the manager's gone doesn't mean we've got to change the style of play. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big thing for a club to do now. I think I, I think the, the the days of a manager coming in and changing the philosophy and, and having that opportunity to lose the players early on, I think should should be going. I think I don't think it is at all clubs, but I think it should be going because of that that need now for continuity. You know, clubs have realised that financially it was ridiculous that every time that, you know, we, we changed manager and I remember in, in the, um, you know, Danny Webb had a different style of play. He, so he joined, he was already at the club, but he became manager around January time, if I remember rightly. So the transfer market was just open. Well, he didn't want all the same players that were there at the start of the season. So, and probably not the same style. So all of a sudden we were now looking at different players. And I think that's something that, that you know, clubs need to look at really is that when they're employing their coaches they're employing their players they need to be able to link you know if one player leaves or one player, one coach leaves the next one needs to be able to get on with them we don't want to put ourselves in that situation where someone's going to come in and do something nuts that's going to completely offset the team sort of thing and so moving on there you've mentioned a little bit around the recruitment side obviously you said about some of the recruitment scout and what you've done and, and, and analyst wise can you just talk through what the process actually looks like for that and what yeah what that actually looks like because I can imagine you could go and get footage from you know a third division game in Qatar and be looking through through that for a player so how do you actually go around I guess filtering down which information is useful filtering down which players are realistic because if you're at Brentford at this moment in time Messi's probably not realistic so how do you go around I guess catering to that and then what does that actually what do you prepare in a report to say I think this player is someone we should pursue moving forward yeah so I think I mean I'll be a little bit careful about what I say Brentford boy because you sign a contract when you leave about what you can and can't say in the future about about their 
their business. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, all of my, so when I was at Gillingham, I actually created a, it was basically a, a, it sounds ridiculous, but like a scouting database. that I, It sounds ridiculous that I was creating that a few years ago. Like, where has that been before? Um, but I was basically, I started that. You know, any player that any coach, any of us went and watched, we would write a little report and it would be trying to hit several things. And that's gone right through, you know, that, that those sort of things stayed with me. So I think one thing that's really important for a club, especially now, I'm talking about director of football and having a style is about, right, for me, first things first, create a profile for every player, every position. This is our style of play. It doesn't have to be necessarily a formation, but this is our style of play. What does our right back look like? What does our centre back look like in our dream? What, if, if this is what we're trying to create, what do they look like? And you have to stick by that. I think a huge thing for me is you have to stick by that. So, so you don't end up being caught in one of those traps where you have to then sell a player because a new manager's coming or something like that. You know, what does that player look like? So no matter what manager we've got, he's still one of our players. You know, he's still a, in that sense, a Leighton Orient player or a Brentford player. You know, Brentford may change their manager in the next couple of years, but they won't need to change all their players because they will be will still be similar. Um, so I think from that sort of profile, you get what comes into your um, into your report. You know, how good are they? You know, I'm 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 big on um, a lot of clubs are doing it now. Um, rate, you know, you, I think you need some sort of numerical part to it. Um, I'm not huge on the data side. That's never been my, not because I disbelieve in it but it's because that's not been something that I've worked with a lot you know I'm working in I didn't have access to that sort of thing when I was at, at Gillingham and Orient and working at Brentford that just wasn't my role there was a data analyst there um, that helped suggest some of the players um, and then I'll, I'll basically my role was was the volume and watching the players over and over and different players to be able to um, to determine whether they were the right player for us so yeah creating that sort of that, that report is about putting a I think one big thing for me is Everyone used to go on one, one to five systems. That uh, you know, two's bad, three's okay. Let's take out okay. Let's make somebody make a, a decision. You know, let's make a scout make a decision. Are they a three because they're good, or are they a you know a two because they're not good enough? If you know what I mean. Like there, there needs to be some sort of no. There can't be a middle ground because I think one thing that's that's really important for me and from my sort of philosophy for it is that. Volume is important when you're watching players. I think you can watch players. I, I, I spoke to a, a quite a big European club and I couldn't believe that they said to me before, yeah, if, if the manager suggested a player and we go and watch them twice, we could sign them off that. And I was thinking like, uh, for me, that's a struggle. Like you're going to spend millions of pounds on a player that you've seen play twice. And then this is, I'm talking like last year I had this conversation. Um, and it was, um, as I say, I think volume is important for me because, I don't know, we're going to go and watch a player um, who's playing in, I don't know, whatever league. And we could watch him on one day. He could have an absolute world, the best day of his life. We could watch him another day, he could have the worst day. If we'd only watched him on one of those days, we're going to see him as two very different players. And I, so I think a big thing for me is, can you watch a player five times? If you've watched the player five times, you've got some sort of understanding. And I know that's a lot, but you sort of mentioned there about how you watch the players. You know, there's a lot of access to, um, clubs have access to Scout and many other things into that similar now as well, where you can watch players from pretty much any any country, any any club in, in the world, really, particularly around Europe. And that was something that was huge on um, for my role in uh, Brentford, was watching players around Europe, different leagues, different markets that maybe were undiscovered if you like you know not necessarily undiscovered but you know not everyone was looking there in terms of in terms of English clubs especially um, I think that's obviously changed a lot now with you know the whole Brexit rules and all the rest of it I think that's that changed the way that, that Brentford and most Premier League clubs can can now scout players um, those players who were you know potentially cheaper who before because they were playing in the Scandinavian League well you don't have access to them anymore so scouting's got to change um, but yeah, as I say, volume's huge for me because if you watch a player five times and they've had their worldie, they've had their rubbish day, well, the other three are going to tell you something about them. You know, and, and when you've got to that five times, then you can, you know, some clubs, I know, I know that clubs go five times and if they're still good at that point, then we'll go to 10 times, like in, in total. And then we'll go to 15 and then we'll refer them to the, 
referring to the club. That was something that I, I learned from an interview with, with a club recently. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I think the volume is important because you've got to discover who that player is and, and knowing whether they fit you depends on your how you structured your report, which depends on your profile of the player. Um, so yeah, it, to say there needs to be that circle, that 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 full that full circle, that full link of this is our philosophy, this is the player we want, and now we actually need to make sure they're the right player by watching them enough times and knowing that he just didn't have two good games when we happened to turn up. Yeah, you don't want to end up with George Weir's cousin, do you? Playing for you, <laughs> you don't want another situation like that. Um, now, listen, we, we've we've come to the time that obviously that we'd allotted for this. So the last question for me, which is something I ask everyone, which is, who's the um, I guess in, in 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 your field, who's the best coach you've worked with, or best analyst you've worked with or against, and why? Um. Interestingly, from an analysis point of view, I haven't worked with many because I was always lead analyst. And that's something that I actually want to improve. I want to go to a club that I can be part of a department because I've, it's always been my ideas. And I would love to go to a place that I can implement my ideas or like suggest my, you know, have my ideas, but actually be led by something that's, that's seen before. So really mine from a coaching point of view. But um I mean, Ross Embleton was brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. He was so much about development. So Ross Embleton worked at Spurs with uh, Chris Ramsey um, in the academy and and spoke so much about the process and how everything was about development. You know, he, he, I remember him telling me once about he was absolutely furious because there was a coach who, uh, I think like under 15 game, who got a player to do a long throw in and he was like, who's that developing? just because he can launch the ball from there to there, who's that actually developing? And, and there was a real sort of emphasis then on uh, at Spurs on, on that sort of thing. <clears throat> and he, he brought it to, to Orient. I think the big thing for, for with Ross was that we were sort of uh, linked in the sense that everyone says at lower league, foot, lower league football that you can't play in a certain way. You can't play total football. You can't be this team. And it used to infuriate me. And, you know, you've got, as, a, as an analyst, who has to stand by and, it's not my ideas are implemented on a match day. I'm going with the manager who's got a lot more experience than me. And there was so much of, oh, but you can't do it in this league. And Ross was a real believer that you could. Um, and he he had worked at Swindon beforehand. I mean, if you get a chance to look at Swindon's promotion campaign, I can't think what the year was, but from, from I think they got into the playoffs a couple of years. Martin Ling was manager. Uh, Ross was there. Uh, and an assistant, I can't remember his name, but a good friend of Ross. And they played like, the football they played were unbelievable. And they're doing this at League Two level because, he stuck with his principles and said, well, no, we can do it. You know, why Why shouldn't we improve what we're doing? Um, so he was really good. And another one for me was Steve Davis. Um, I think Steve Davis, so he was, he'd been at Crew, and everything about Crew was development, um, developing the academy players into the first team. Again, they had that style of football. And he said, you know, why not? We At this stage, we were, so we went to the, the National League because of, because of the, the the madness that had sort of pursued the year before, and Steve came in as manager, he'd had a you know really good track record, and he basically you know turned up and said, "We're not just going to smash the ball," you know, and and that was that was what we came up against every every week. A lot of weeks we were coming up against teams in non-league that was very much like direct play, and you know there's, there's obviously a place for that, but it was all about physicality, and you know I remember at the time I can't remember his name, but Halifax had a player who was like. It's genuinely about seven foot tall, and it was like that was the game. That was the game, and uh, I, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll mind my language, but my best quote from my whole time in football was when we were playing away against Dagenham, and it was absolute, it was shambolic. And uh, Steve Davis had been sitting on the bench, and he just came running out from the to the touchline. He just shouted, "Stop effing whacking it!" And that was like summed up non-league football for me. And, and that was genuinely, that was the thing. And, and he stuck by his principles. We've played some unbelievable football. Um, and we was, you know, he was really unfortunate because when he was at, um, he was at Orient, we had, we basically, we had, because we had to start from scratch at the start of the season, we had, um, had to, we were very short on players by the time that the transfer went or, you know, we could actually start playing games. So we had, two real centre-backs. We had Josh Colson, who's been brilliant around that sort of level for a long time, and George Ellicobi from Wolves and, you know, played in the Premier League and all this. So we had those two. And in the space of like four days, both of them got long-term injuries. And we were top of the league when they both got their injuries. And by the time they came back, 
from their injuries. We went on, I think it was like, it was something ridiculous, like 11 games without winning. And we were playing, I remember there's a game on TV against Hartlepool that we had had like 22 shots. They'd had one shot and we lost the game 1-0. But that just kept happening, kept happening. And we just didn't have that centre-back part. We didn't have anything. We had a couple of like youth team players who were playing there and good players, but just not ready for that level yet. Um, so Steve was really unlucky in that sense. Um, and he's somebody, so Ross and Steve are two people I would love to love to see manage again. And I'd love to actually just go and, you know, I often think, you know, if I had a season ticket for somebody's team, they're the team who I'd like to go and have a season ticket and actually just enjoy the football that they would play. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're the two for me. Perfect. Listen, Nick, really appreciate your time. Loads of interesting stuff. And um, be sure to, when your research is published, be sure to add me in and I'll, I'll put it across all my platforms so everyone's aware of it. But yeah, really appreciate your time. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.